Good morning. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guests are Kurt Benson and Mike Dunn. They are the lawyers, both in Grand Rapids and in Kalamazoo. In Grand Rapids, you'll hear them uh, with their own radio show on Wood News Radio, Wood 1300. And in Kalamazoo, 590 on your AM dial, WKZO. Kurt Benson, Mike Dunn, with respect, We'll be right back. Gentlemen, good morning. Good now, morning. I, use the, I use that term, gentlemen, loosely because <laughs> I've loosely. known you two guys for a long time. And uh, and I was telling your absolutely wonderful producer here uh, that, uh, Mary, that uh, I campaigned with Kurt Benson's wife when she was running for the Court of Appeals, and we bonded in a way that only candidates can. It's the bond of exhaustion. <laughs> At the end of the day, we just would sit there and say to our, each other, why are we doing why? this? Why? <laughs> why? That's the question that is asked at home. Well, at you, least every you campaigned for Judge Markey, but you actually bonded me out of jail one time, remember? <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a special bond. <laughs> there's a special it's bond. It's the closest bond you can have. It's almost like parent and child. All right. That voice was Mike Dunn, who is a lawyer here in Grand Rapids, a trial lawyer. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about his background in a minute. But he and I have practiced law with each other. I don't think against each other, but with each other for many, many years. And Kurt, um, we have we never practiced against each other, but we have known each other now for 20, 25 years. Ever since I applied for a job at the U.S. Attorney's Office and you did not hire me. Yes, Ooh. yes, I love that. <laughs> if I only knew then what I know now. You would I have w- had him arrested too? No, I wouldn't have allowed him in for the interview. <laughs> get through the front door. That's what he's trying to figure out. So it was John Swatanka and Elliot Spitzer that turned you down. So you've got a great record going there. I'm in great company then. I'm in great company. All right, you two. Kurt. Yes. Kurt, tell us about your background. How did you get into what you're doing? Where did you come from and um, and where are you at now? Well, I was uh, actually born in Detroit, but I grew up in Grand Rapids. I've been here since uh, since I was like two years old or something. And um, in my family, getting a law degree is a little bit like losing your hair. It's kind of <laughs> it's inevitable. It's mandatory. It's just inevitable. It's you know, DNA. Eventually, yeah. it's going to happen. Uh, my father uh, is a circuit judge here in Kent County. And uh, he's bald. Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, retired. And my grandfather was uh, a lawyer and a part-time judge in South Bend, Indiana, by the way, uh, way back in the 20s. And she's uh, I got a sister who's a lawyer. My brother's a lawyer. My uncle's a lawyer. My wife is a judge, as you indicated. So it's a very legal family. And, and, and when I was uh, in undergrad, I really, really wanted to be a writer. And I would write fiction. I would write nonfiction. I would write and write and write. And one day realized that, you know, honestly, I wasn't that good. I mean, I just <laughs> I wasn't going to be John Steinbeck. 
Uh, and, and I know Mike's going to tell you about his garage band days when he realized he was not the Beatles. So we're all we're all uh, casting about for there's, a second career there's a, fr- here. there's a friend of mine who was a judge, and I asked him one time, I said, why did you become a lawyer? And he said, well, it's a process of elimination. <laughs> exactly. I, I couldn't do anything else. Well, don't so, confuse yourself, John. He's He wasn't a very good lawyer, but he's a really good professor now. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I went to law school in part. I was an English major in undergrad, and, and, and I guess been the back of my mind, I always realized that law was was a real strong option and a possibility. And quite frankly, once I started practicing, I really did love it. I mean, it does it. it it's a great profession. It's it's drama. And, and I and I always liken it to in a weird way, high school sports. Right. I wasn't a very particularly gifted athlete, but I played high school sports and I thought, you know, how excited you get if you'd win a game. Yeah. You'd say you're playing football and you right. just win and you're just on cloud nine. And when you lose a game, how miserable and horrible you are. Right. Well, you know, it's like 20 years of playing high school football. You know, you try a case, and I mean, I don't know how many adults get the thrill, the so-called thrill of victory and agony mm-hmm. defeat. You know, we're grown-ups, and yet, and 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 don't get me wrong, what we're doing has consequences. Our, our clients suffer terribly. Our clients, uh, uh, you know, can do very well. But that emotional range of the the thrill of winning a case, the the you know the gut wrenching feeling when you lose a case that you feel you should have won, and your mm-hmm. client is maybe going to prison or is losing his life's fortune, and it's it's a very emotional thing, and I and I and I love that emotion. I, I, I like I said, I'm, I've been playing high school football now for forty years. It's a narcotic. It, it is. It truly it really is a narcotic. Is. And yet, there are many people, uh, many lawyers, who don't have the temperament. To do to walk into court and try a case and take the emotional chance of the highs and lows, and it's those people who I, I actually feel sorry for because they don't get this this great uh, uh, high that you're talking mm-hmm. about or become really alive uh, as you do when you when you're in the midst of a trial or preparing for a trial. And that's actually a good way of putting it: that sense of feeling really alive mm-hmm. and the relationship, the bond. We we're joking about bond, but the bond you develop with a client. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of clients that you don't particularly, you, you might not like, you may not trust, you may not. But then there are other clients you, you just you, can't, you mm-hmm. get caught up in their lives, and you can never get too caught up because you always have to maintain that professional distance because you have to have that objectiveness. You know, if you get too caught up in your client's life, you're going to be ineffective attorney. But it's hard not to get caught up in their lives and you become their champions. And well, you that, know, we were ahead. talking off the air, John and I. We worked on a case together a long time ago, and and the person is just about to get out of jail after many years. But it still matters to me, and we still talked about it off the air to say, you know, this person's doing this, and he's going to get out early because of this, and, geez, isn't that a good thing? So there is a bond that you really connect with even when the people who go to jail. I mean, you know that saying, you know, the lawyer goes to lunch and the client goes to jail. But it's not that simple. I mean, we really bleed for these people and really try hard and respect this whole process. Mm-hmm. After a three-week trial one time when I was U.S. attorney, I was uh, trying this fellow and who was one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. He was constantly cracking jokes in all the recesses. And we don't do any of that. We, I'm sure. And, and his attorney caught him one day coming over to me and saying, this is in the break at a trial where I'm prosecuting him. Right. And he said... <laughs> Hey John, he's doing one-liners. He's doing. He says, John, I got these. I got four tickets to the Notre Dame game this weekend. Would you like to have them? I can't use them. I'm and otherwise occupied. I said, I can't do that. But attorney, is it? Are they good seats? Is the question. <laughs> but at any rate, so at the, after he was convicted and and the judge sent him to prison for five years for his particular offense, the first Christmas I got a card. So help me. 
I got a card from him saying, having a great time, wish you were here. <laughs> But the second year was the best one in which he, he sent me a card which said, John, I think you're going to do great things in your life, and I just want you to remember, I gave you your start. <laughs> Tell me the five years he was in the penitentiary were the Jerry Faust years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, hope, I hope Destiny at least treated him that well. Yeah, because it was Lou Holtz. I mean, you really made yeah, a bad he, decision. Yeah. He, he really suffered then. Yeah, that's right. I did have a client last year who literally at the end, kind of halfway through a case, he, it, was a, it was a child neglect case, he wanted to get his kids back, he starts walking up to the bench to the judge as we're leaving. And I wasn't really paying attention. And as I got up there, he was like some district manager of ABC Warehouse. As I walked up to him, I said, what are you doing? And he said, no, I got a gift certificate for the judge. He was going to give him like 200 bucks. You know, Here's just a little on the side, judgey. And I said, get out of here. <laughs> All right. As long as we're doing this, I, back when I first started as an assistant prosecutor in Berrien County, there was a fellow who was charged with obtaining money under false pretenses. He stole eighty, ninety thousand dollars from a, a widow, and you know that was bad. Now, how did we find out about it? His son and heir brought the case to us and said, "My mother is being ripped off by this con man." So, we tracked this guy down. We made a case, and. We brought him back. Even he feigned a heart attack over Nebraska, so we, we might have to go through extradition again. At any rate, we got him back. We put him on trial in the recess. My, my boss and I were walking out of the courtroom, and we looked over in the corner, and there was the defendant and the son of the victim. And they were talking. And the, the victim, uh, the son rather, had his back to us, but we could see his hands were elevated. So we went over and we thought, this is not, you know, not supposed to be talking to the defendant at this time. Right. So we walked, and he's got his checkbook out. Ah. And we asked him, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm just investing in his next venture. <laughs> Honest to God. Honest to God. What he had done is had this brochure made up of this product he was wanted this woman to identify. And it was like Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana. It was he took apart a vacuum cleaner and took big pictures of gizmos inside of the vacuum cleaner. Oh my gosh. I went in on the ground floor. I do too. As a matter of fact, you got that guy's number? <laughs> At any rate, all right, finish up. Now, you, I heard the word law professor coming yes. out here. You, you know, I, I hated law school. I despised every Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. Do you, 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 do you know this? What? <laughs> uh, there's basically three of us or four of us in the whole Kent County area, and John practices up in Kent County also, that went to the same law school oh, that I went to. John Carroll mm -hmm. guy. Uh, that no, was no. John Smetanka, yep. Mike Dunn, George Krupp. <laughs> And one other guest we had on uh, a few weeks ago from uh, he was he was from Illinois and he got that guy out from that oh oh yeah. witty yeah witty yeah. Witty. Sure. yeah so there's basically D four Derek of us. witty from Miller Johnson and that's John Marshall in Chicago and you right hated on. John Marshall well see I was there you know in the old old days when when it, before I mean, we were we were using chalkboards to write down our notes. And we were. There was no laser PowerPoint no, going. There was no laser PowerPoint. Computers were unheard of. You had the the law books had not just dust, but they had mold and they had everything. Ooh, but that smells good. But that's oh yeah right. But at any rate, no, I I just I was just oh, I hated it. Well, you now, know, it, you'd now, hate but him. you're going to make you're going to make a difference. Sorry, how do you what, what's what's your role, Kurt? I I teach civil procedure and evidence. Uh, full time professor at Cooley Law School here in Grand Rapids. 
And civil procedure, you, you probably, everyone agonizes through that class. It's a difficult course. And frankly, I tell my students the first day, look, there's nothing I can do to make this interesting. And <laughs> so we just, we just have to just knuckle down and get through this together because, you know, it's just, it's just killer material. And, yeah. John, if you've got four hours after the show's over, he'll tell you the Erie Doctrine. <laughs> oh, my Lord, yes. not that. Oh, yes. yes. Erie versus Tom. He even invited me to come listen to that nonsense. Uh, and my other, now you would like my evidence class because I teach the federal rules. And oh, evidence uh, for our listeners are basically the laws and the rules about how you present a case in trial. So when you're watching TV and somebody jumps up and says, I object hearsay and all that kind of stuff, well, that, that's because it's based on rules that attorneys have to follow. And I teach those rules. And, and that course actually is, is a little more interesting than civil procedure. So I, I've been teaching at Cooley Law School for about, gosh, it's already been about four years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I enjoy it immensely. I like our students, and I certainly like um, the, it's, it's a wonderful institution to work for. Now, your students have actually not walked out on you? Not yet. Not but, yet. But he flunks students. I mean, he's known, because I'm an adjunct over there, he's known as a really tough professor. But if you want to go someplace where everybody treats, if you wear a suit to a law school, more people will smile at you, open doors for you, say good morning to you. It's almost like you really belong in a world where out here in the street, everybody ignores you. They'd rather just step on you. But you go to a law school with a suit on, Buster, and you're king. Well, all right. Now, I know something about him. We're going to get into the radio part here in a minute, but... Mike Dunn, tell me where you came from. You already said you came from John Marshall. What about before that? You know, I'm from Chicago. No lawyers in my family. Probably, probably a few bondsmen. But I was born uh, Irish Catholic Chicago, adopted in, uh, at, from St. Vincent's Orphanage. And, you know, there was one time I had a case in Madison, Wisconsin, and I called my client to the stand. And the client gets on the stand, and he's about 15 years older than me, and I was just trying to make him a human to the jury. And I said, okay, George, Tell me where you're from. And he goes, well, I was born and raised at an orphanage that no longer exists. I hadn't asked him this before. And I said, where's that? And he goes, St. Vincent's Orphanage in Chicago. <laughs> and I'm standing there in front of the jury, just about ready to look at the jury and go, me too. <laughs> hey, gang. We were crib mates. <laughs> Daddy. <laughs> Brother. <laughs> So I went to John Marshall Law School, then I ended up uh, uh, going with the highest bidder theory. I came to Varnum Rittering in Grand Rapids uh, based on the fact that if they were going to hit the highest number and offer me a job, more power to me. And I went there, and I, uh, the rest is just plain history, John. And now I'm, I'm teaching um, um, two classes at Cooley Law School. I teach moot court. I teach that during the day, and I moot love it. Moot court is? Moot court is basically arguing to a panel of appellate judges, and it's, it's different than mock trial where you have actual trials for the students and you go through the rules of evidence. This is literally where you're presenting as a petitioner or a respondent, as you would to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court. It is great, great, because it's an actual course. It's a regular 15-week course, and for the first seven weeks, the students work on a brief and the next seven weeks they have competition with other classes there's eight classes here between what is it oakland county um grand rapids and lansing and then we have this big competition and so the professors all you know they call them professor there um but but the professors even go oh my goodness we have to have this competition and you know i hope our some of our students win so that's that's a lot of fun well, you know, that's that's interesting because uh, I kid about how I hated John Marshall and uh, law school. 
Um, in I, I applied that, by the way, every time. When you came in to interview, you probably said that you liked law school. And that's an automatic disqualifier in my book. Anybody who likes it has got to be, oh, oh, wait a minute, you are a law professor. <laughs> that's right. you got to be a pointy-headed nerd is what you're saying. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Kurt Benson and Mike Dunn, the lawyers on both um, Grand Rapids Radio and also Kalamazoo Radio. And we'll be right back. back now with Mike Dunn and Kurt Benson, who are the lawyers. Now, they have a show in Grand Rapids and in Kalamazoo. In Grand Rapids, it's on News Radio Wood 1300, and in Kalamazoo and WKZO AM 590. Sponsored by the Cooley Law School, which is, of course, where uh, Kurt and maybe Mike Dunn, we're going to talk about that in a minute, uh, he is about to sell out to, uh, <laughs> to the establishment. Uh, and if you ever want to hear any of their programs, you can hear it on thelawyersshow.com. That's really hard to, to remember. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's, it's really an interesting place, too, because my son, who's a second-year student at MSU, developed the site, and it is a really well put together. It has video clips of us, and it has... Uh, times where we're on Gary Allen, and it's just you know it's just all about us, Kurt. I mean, you know, it's all boils down. It's just you and I. That's right. That's right. You know how, how many times I've heard that from lawyers anywhere. <laughs> it's all, it's all about it's all me. About you understand? We're, we're taking it to a fine art here, John. <laughs> but would you want if you were uh, being represented in court? Would you want a shrinking violet to represent you? No, nope. it, it's no? A, there's a certain personality type. For trial law, and, and, right. and I would emphasize, there's a lot of different lawyers, lawyers who do wills and trust and corporate mm -hmm. law, so the profession can handle all sorts of different personality right. types. But it's a it's a unique personality who is a good trial lawyer, and and yeah, there's a certain amount of bravado, there's a certain amount of ego, because it's you know in in a way nobody should be doing what we do. So somebody's you know so you have to have a big ego to even think that you can right. do it. Right. Uh, so you're well, right. but trial lawyers less brains, more affability. I mean, it's, it's... Well, you can't overthink a trial. There's you no can't question. overthink a trial, no. You just got to get out there. If you're a defense lawyer, you just want the jury to vote for you. You want the jury to say, that client is really horrible, but boy, that Mr. Dunn's such a nice such guy. A we nice just got to let well, his you know, Did you know he was an orphan? <laughs> <laughs> an orphan? An orphan. <laughs> Pirates of Penzance. All right. <laughs> we have... Uh, this we, is public radio. This I is do, public radio. We, we got to know the reference to, uh, to uh, Pirates of Penzance. Okay, all right. Yes, that's right. So, Michael Dunn, uh, you talked about trying cases. You have tried cases for a long time. 
lot. What kind? What I'm, kind of cases? I'm mostly criminal cases. When it boils down to it, I do a lot of um, juvenile neglect. But my biggest cases have been in the federal system. I, I do about half my practice is federal. About 25% of my uh, practice is uh, state criminal. And then the rest is juvenile neglect and maybe some domestic type issues. But, um, but I like being in the courtroom. Trial lawyers don't like to be behind desks working in paper. They want to go get up and the camaraderie. I mean, just hanging out with other lawyers and judges, even judges that are complicated. It's a puzzle that you can solve. And if you can go into that courtroom and the judge can at least listen to what you're saying, it's a big, huge victory. You know, one of the things that that I have heard repeatedly from friends and um, over the years is, well, I see you people in the courtroom and you're all buddies. You're all, you know, and you go out and have drinks afterwards. But that means that you're not doing a good job for me because you like this other guy that you're, who is representing the person suing me or prosecuting me. But that's not true. No, and that happens a lot with the U.S. attorney's situations where I'm in federal court and I go over to the U.S. attorney and put my hand on his back or something or he'll say, hey, how are your kids doing? How did Michael do with at MSU this year? And they think that that's negative. I think that gives me a screaming advantage because that person listens to me, that person probably negotiates more with oh, me. That's right. And it really is, I mean, do you really want to negotiate or do something for someone who's always knocking heads with you or trying to pull the rug out from under you? No, I disagree with that. And I tell my clients, I like the person that helps us, that doesn't hurt Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Yeah, having been on the other side uh, and the side of the prosecutor for 25 years, the, the, the ones that we found it very difficult to negotiate or to help out in any way, shape, or form, were those who were whining all the time or uh, accusing us of, you know, all kinds of misconduct and unethical behavior or shouting at us. I mean, there's what purpose is there? There's no purpose to that. It's the guys that can turn your first name, John, into a three-syllable, John. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's tough even for a whiner. (laughs) My name, Kurt. I mean, but I've heard it. I've heard it. But, you know, these relationships are built on trust, and that's one thing that the client has to understand. So if I go to my opponent and I say, look, here's the situation. You know, it's not on the record. It's not... It's not a fact that we've you've discovered in the course of your investigation, but here's what really happened. If my opponent trusts me, exactly, that works to my client's advantage. If my client, on the other hand, doesn't like me or doesn't trust me or my, I'm a whiner and I'm screaming at my client, he's going to say, I don't buy that. Prove it to me. And all of a sudden, guess who's going to charge the client how many hours for me to prove to you the facts that I'm setting forth, when if I have a good relationship with my opponent, if I just say it, they'll believe me because I'm not going to lie to you, right? I've known this guy for years. He's not going to lie to you. It saves clients a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of grief. If the client gets jammed up in a time situation, hey, we needed to get those an- the answer to the complaint in, but my client's mm-hmm. mother is sick. I can pick up the phone. Hey, can we have an extension of time? Well, if I'm constantly butting heads with my opponent, he's going to say no. Get your Client home from the hospital. I don't care about his mother dying. Get him home. Get him these. Get these things answered. So it always works to the client's advantage when the attorneys have a good, trustful relationship with their opposing counsel. It's also way more expensive if you had a bad relationship really with is. the other attorney. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. it's twice as much work. Oh yeah, everybody's spending every single penny just so they. I see that with divorce lawyers, where divorce lawyers go, "Well, I don't even deal with trying to tell the client we should settle because they don't want to." So I'll play that game, and we'll just all try to beat each other to death. And then when all the money's gone, then we'll figure out a way to solve it. And I go, "That's not the way to practice law." No, and I'll tell you what. One of the and we see this regularly. We're we're a small five-person law firm. With office in Washington. With an office in Washington, that's right. Um, that is so cool. It is, is so cool. Is that cool. And I know him, Kurt. He takes my calls. 
Sometimes. <laughs> Only when I have to. I have exactly. nothing else to do in the when afternoon. When you accidentally pick up the phone and, didn't you screen this? <laughs> but I tell you, I, I have dealt with, uh, over the years, firms, large firms. And I'm not talking, I'm talking the very largest firms, and not, but not all of them, who paper a case to death. Yes. And they take an attitude of attack, 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 and throw motion after motion after motion at you as a tactic. And then all of a sudden, when the time is run out, they drop their client so fast, oh, I think we need to settle this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I said to this, said to one individual recently, why, why do they do that? And, it, and they said they've got big overhead. Mm-hmm. And you know another you know, reason. That's sad. That's a sad part about the law. Well, big firms. But they, you know what they teach their associates, too? I mean, and, and they have a rationale to this, because I used to work at a big firm. They have to do their due diligence. So in order That's to right. settle up front, and they know they're probably going to pay $100,000 at the end, they have to go do all the depositions, go through all the evidence, set up folders for it. One of the lawyers at this big firm told me it takes them $10,000 to wrestle a file to the ground. That means just to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah. That's not a good way to practice. And, and it's a sad commentary on the law, but most of these lawyers can't do it without the complicity of their clients. Uh, and their clients yes. tend to be large businesses, corporations, insurance companies, and so forth. So this may sound like a nakedly political statement, but all we ever hear about are so-called frivolous lawsuits, frivolous lawsuits, which are usually really hapless, injured people who, for whatever reason, have suffered these injuries and they file these lawsuits. What we never hear about is your scenario, the frivolous defense, the corporation who makes the conscious decision to hire a law firm for the sole purpose so we can pay $50,000 in legal fees to paper this person to death until finally that plaintiff just gives up and goes away. That is a tactic. That is a tactic that there's a complicity between the defense lawyer and the corporate client, and it's the same corporate client who is constantly running to the government saying, oh, we're getting killed with these frivolous lawsuits, we're getting killed with frivolous lawsuits, when in fact... They're the ones abusing the system by taking people with meritorious claims, papering them to death, outspending them, and trying to discourage anyone from daring sue us because look what we'll put you through. That's right. I well, mean, you know, Kurt always brings this up, but who has the most lawsuits at most counties? I mean, what what is most counties? It's criminal, obviously, but after that, what is it? Yeah, outside of divorce cases, it's usually businesses suing other businesses. Mm-hmm. This notion of an injured party filing a tort case—that's a pretty—that's percentagely very low. I mean, over at the courthouse, we got divorce, we have the war on drugs, and we got businesses suing businesses. You don't have that many personal injury cases kicking around uh, the courthouse. Down. Certainly not anymore. Not, 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 <laughs> not with the Michigan Supreme Court. I think we had one case last year and 800 attorneys to go after it. All right. Now, you guys have basically laid out your souls here, just like you're arguing to a jury. And that was always the hardest part, you know. But people don't understand when they're on a jury, at least for me. Um, when you have argued, your, you put your best case on, you argued to the jury, the worst time in your life is when the jury is walking back in. Oh, no, and, the, and you do, I tell my client, don't look up, don't look up, because if you can't see their eyes, we're guilty. So if you look down, just pretend it'll be over with in a minute like you're having teeth removed. And the, wor- the worst part, when you lose, the reason it's so bad is because... You, as a good trial lawyer, whether it's plaintiff or defendant or prosecutor or defense, what you've done is you've put your soul out in front of that jury in their hands. And when they come in against you, you can't help it. If you really did your, your, your job, 
you have given them your soul, and they are tearing it and tossing it on the ground <laughs> in public. <laughs> no, they've, they've rejected you. They've rejected yes, you. That's yes. right. And it's, it's all about now, us again. Right. It's all about us right. again. But now, you've gone to, to another stage. You have gone to teach. You're about to start teaching, but you're also doing radio. Why? What's, what's the deal? I mean, this is what we'd from... rather be doing as opposed to anything. I mean, this is, this is really a lot of fun because it's absolute communication. Kurt and I have always gotten along really well, and we have a pretty good chemistry together. And we make people laugh, but we can teach them at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, unlike at home where we don't make them laugh and we don't teach. Mm. Uh, we try, though. No, yeah. I, I, I like the show, and, and part of the reason why we do it is because, uh, you know, we do have a lot of fun doing it, and we do inform, and we hope to actually foster a respect for the law because, you know, we, we don't shy away from the politics. We criticize the Michigan Supreme Court a lot, and, and you can always get frustrated dealing with legislators and Congress and the politics behind it. But we don't dwell on the politics. We dwell on the law, and we try to explain here's why it is. Because to the lay public, sometimes you hear these laws, and they just seem so dumb. They're just so dumb and so contrary to logic. And all we do is we say, okay, look, here's the law. You may agree with it, disagree with it, but here's why the law exists. Here's the social problem it was trying to correct. Here was our history, meaning our social history leading up to this law. And that's why we have this law. And again, you may live to regret it. You may not agree with it. But we hope to at least explain why we have the law and try to explain that the law is not as irrational as people think. It's not as arbitrary as people think. It is, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, not based on logic. It's based on human experience. Mm -hmm. So when something appears illogical, in fact, it's because of our social, our collective history, our experience led us to pass these laws, which in the abstract seems so arbitrary and, and wrong. Well, the bottom line, John, is that uh, Kurt has a big, gigantic ego, and the only way we can feed it is to be on the radio as often as possible, because if I'm on Gary Allen's show, which is a plug for that, once, and I'll just happen to say that in conversation, oh, what were you talking about? Um, they didn't call me. Why didn't they call me on that one? But now you, you have to in fairness to my audience, you have to say, who is Gary Allen? Okay, Gary Allen is a probably the most popular radio host in the Grand Rapids-Kent County type area. Um, and it's sort of our big time. And he's, he's a real good talk show. The morning show on News Radio Wood 1300 is what Gary Allen is. Yeah. But our favorite audience is your audience, John. <laughs> my audience, absolutely. Because my audience is well-educated, interesting, stimulating. Oh, I got to go, Mary. <laughs> All right. Um, you have a, a good dialogue between yourselves. You enjoy this. Um, you enjoy talking. You enjoy talking about the law. And I know both of you that, that there is a, a very serious side to both of you on your personal lives. You take your family responsibilities very seriously, uh, and, uh, and that's, that's great. What is the... What is the greatest, maybe we'll take a break here after I give you the questions. Let me th- let you think about it. What is, a, is it about the law that attracts you, that, that turns you on, and that want, makes you want to communicate, not only to your law school classes, not only to your juries, Mike, but uh, to, to the audience as a whole, but also to your families, to your friends, when you're not on stage, when it's only you talking, talking to people. What, what, what's the law all about? Why, does it, why do you live it? Okay, we're going to take a break right now. We're with 
uh, Kurt Benson and Mike Dunn. They are, have a program called The Lawyer's Show on News Radio Wood 1300. Uh, they're uh, put on by or s supported by Cooley Law School. And on WKZO in Kalamazoo, uh, AM 590. And if you want to hear one of their shows, you can hear it on by going by live streaming. Actually, either live streaming uh, through uh, the podcast uh, through the Wood Race or Wood Radio uh, streaming program, or podcast through their uh, website, thelawyersshow.com. We'll be right back. Back now with Kurt Benson and Mike Dunn, and I should, and I, I just want you both to notice that I flipped your names both times. First, Mike Dunn, Kurt Benson, Kurt Benson, Mike Dunn, because I don't want to puncture anybody's ego balloon. Here. You heard, you heard about the back behind the scenes stuff, all the stuff the paparazzi's getting us on, and then my name was mentioned more, or his name. Actually, mentioning Mike's name first violates the contract between us and Clear Channel Communications. Uh, so. so we'll have Mary flip it around. <laughs> Mary's our producer, by the way. Yeah. All right. All right, guys. Now now we get to serious stuff. Why do you love the law? And you do. You, I mean, all joking aside, you do. Why? You know, it, it, it kind of goes back to my earlier introduction about my father, uh, who I, the man I most respect in the world, has such a passion for the law, and I think I just inherited it from him. When I was a little kid, he always spoke of the law as if it was a third party. He never talked about politicians. He didn't say Republican, Democrat. He would always say, well, son, the law says this. The law says that. So in our house, I always thought of the law as... You know, I, I think it's, I, I perceived a little differently from most people. It was always this like third party out there that was eminently logical and, 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 and authoritative, and I learned to respect the authority of the law. And so that's sort of how I transmit it to my own children. I would say, well, you know, because I've got kids who are teenagers, and, and they're getting to their age now when they think about the law, right? They, get, they already have friends who have been arrested for drunk driving, or they, they got, you know, marijuana, you know, just scuttlebutt around school, so-and-so got caught for marijuana. And they'll ask questions like, well, Dad, can the police just come and look through your car without asking. I mean, that's what happened to so-and-so down the street, you know? And I, I say, well, today they can. Yes, son. It's a lot shorter of a conversation today than it was a few years ago. Well, they they do but, they did away with the Fourth Amendment a few years yeah. ago. And since that, son, it's been really hacked. Spoken and I, like a true defense you know, attorney. And, and, yeah, and I just try to explain. And, and again, I always refer to the law as my father always referred to the law. So I think I actually inherited it from my dad, uh, who, again, is, is somebody I, I just have – so much respect for and since he respects the law it's just it's how i was raised it was how mm -hmm. i was raised so so i'm sitting at a table when i'm 25 years old and at the table it was come some kind of bar or restaurant and my best friend's a dentist and he's sitting next to me and across from me is a chiropractor and next to me is a a guy who just finished law school and at that time i owned an office cleaning company in chicago and it was pretty darn successful. I had 50, 60 employees. And so I felt like, you know, I was really making it there. But the lawyer's getting all the chicks? No, no, but, 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 they, <laughs> over the third beer, 
Um, they looked at me and, and very, very nicely that my dentist friend said, so anyway, how do you get this kind of spot out of the carpeting? And I remember sitting there and thinking, that's about the extent of what I can offer this universe. And it really was a moment for me where nobody was being mean, but I said, I really want to do something where I think I can matter. And that's the truth. So I, I literally went to law school, went through it, and it's been something that's been a big proud deal to me. My One of my dad's best friend was on uh, one of the uh, courts of appeals in the federal system. And um, I went to talk to him and I said, now I'm 28 years old. I finished with undergrad and I'm kind of old. And uh, I don't. I might be too old to go to law school. And he looked at me and he said, well, how long does law school take? And I said, well, three years. And he said, okay, well, um, how old do you be in three years? I said, 31. He goes, okay, one way you'll be a lawyer and the other way you won't be. And I, it was so simple, but I thought, you know, darn it, I'm going to do this. So I am, and now I'm a, I'm a famous radio star. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're getting the chicks. And now I'm getting, you would not believe it. <laughs> I mean, you really would. I'm sitting there all by myself. <laughs> That's right. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> You've seen me. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, to toss in a little history, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, great writer about American society and government and, and uh, how we looked uh, at ourselves and how, how what we were back in the 1850s. Remarkable, prescient guy. He, he uh, made comments about, for example, in 1842, I think it was, he wrote a book called Democracy in America, and I believe it was in that one of his works in which he made a prediction that the two great powers in the world, this is 1842, were going to be Russia and America. And I thought, that's pretty prescient. It, it really was. But he also uh, talked about lawyers a lot and law and what he— uh, Did he predict per- our show, John? He sat there and he said, there is going to come a day when the law is reduced to simplicity by the likes of Mike Dunn and <laughs> Kurt Benson. At he the said lawyershow.com. At thelawyershow.com. That's right. You got it in again. This is I good. I, I feel did. like I feel like Jay Leno now. I've got I've got promos. I'm hawking for us, baby. I'm hawking. <laughs> All right. Okay, fine. But the law and the lawyers, he said, he said law is extremely well respected in America, more so than in other countries. And and that is true. If you go around the world, the concept of the rule of law is a is not I won't say an American institution, but it is something that we are known for in in our in theory. The second thing is lawyers. He said are the uh, maybe the elite class or the princely class of American society. But on the other hand, the American people are are rebels against the law, and they despise lawyers. And so we have this dichotomy between the law and lawyers, like hate. What do you do? You come across that? Do you do you see that at all? Oh heavens, yes. And and I think the reason why. And in 1840, what he was writing only 70 years after the revolution. And although lawyers love to tell people how many lawyers were who signed the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. I think by the way, as a profession, they were associated with the crown. I think they were largely regarded as Tories. So when they were. Re- when the colonists were rebelling. We have to do this every week, John. He goes into colonists or Tories with, or something, and I blank out for a while. <laughs> when the colonists were rebelling against England, I think the attorneys as a class was was associated with the crown. And, and, and so I think lawyers were real unpopular for a period of time after the revolution because because they were supporting the king. Uh, but by 1840 and, and even again today, here's the thing about lawyers. Lawyers are clever. 
They're clever people. They're not necessarily intellectual. They're not necessarily wise. They're not necessarily uh, intellectual and wise. Speak for yourself, but Kurt. they're very. Yeah, exactly. They're considered very clever. And we all have a kind of love-hate relationship with clever people. On the one hand, we admire that clever people get things done. We admire how they can win when perhaps we can't win. But at the same time, we don't necessarily respect them because there's a, there's a sense that they're, they're not moored to any principle. They're not moored to any moral morality. They're just clever. So we admire the clever man, but we mistrust the clever man. Because we somehow think he's somehow disengaged from ethics. And I think that is has been a perception of the law since that Frenchman walked around here in 1840 writing all these notes down. And I think that's partly true today. But right? by and large, lawyers are very ethical. I mean, the people I work with on a daily basis. And I, you know, since you've been unplugged from the law, Kurt, I mean, you, you're still in the law school environment. He really walks into offices of his old friends and goes, hey, guys. He puts his feet up on the desk and tells war stories, but he's not in it on the day-to-day trenches. And I've been doing it for many, many years now, and and so have you, John. By and large, people, we try to do the best job we can. We try to help out our clients the best we can, and we are not going to stab people in the back. And you're going to get the random lawyer who does that, but everybody knows that person, and everybody Mm -hmm. knows not to work with that person. And we know how to handle and manage people, but you're really going to get people who are taking the high road on 90% of the time in the legal business, and that's the absolute truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, we make jokes about it, but that's true. Mm -hmm. And by the way, do you like being a lawyer, John? I love being a lawyer. I do. I have lovely being a lawyer all the way through. And I've done it 25 years in prosecution and now 14 or 15 years in uh, private practice. Um, and I, it, it is, and I, I was trying to think of my, my grandfather was a lawyer, my granduncle was a lawyer, my dad was a lawyer, my uncles were lawyers. And so it, it's, a, it's a genetic defect in our family, <laughs> it is. just like in yours. It just, you can't help it. But, but the, I came into it, and my brother's now a lawyer, um, but both of us decided in our generation that we were not going to be lawyers. I was studying to be a priest. Ray studied to be a priest. Uh, I uh, left the uh, seminary and I went to law school because I really wanted to be a diplomat, but I thought I need some kind of a profession or a way of making a living because a, f- a philosophy major no. was not going to do it, uh, especially in those days, especially a Thomistic philosophy in the days of the 1960s. And it was not, it was not a, you know, uh, something I could retire on. Well, McDonald's has a whole section where they can deal with that, and they hire people <laughs> right. just that type of <laughs> philosophy. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> but at but any rate, uh, I went into for law for that reason. My brother decided he was going to be a journalist because he always loved to write, and he got his master's in journalism at Northwestern and, and became a reporter and covered uh, the riots in Washington in 68. He covered um, the Chicago Convention in, in that year, and... Uh, and worked to, went to work for the Benton Harbor News Palladium for a couple of years and um, loved it. But then he went to Vietnam and his, uh, in his uh, duty for the country and uh, came back and thought, I think I better find something else because what they had him doing in the Army oh, yeah. was as a, 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 what was a, um, a combat correspondent for an Army newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was great. <clears throat> he got a bronze star for it. And, uh, for it, and it was and he's very downplay. He'll, he'll make fun of it all, but he mm-hmm. he uh, he did pretty well. Um, for, Didn't he ended know. up working with the Congress? He then went to work for Con- he became a lawyer. Okay, and then he went to to work for uh, the Congress, and he retired recently after thirty five years as a uh, counsel for the House Judiciary Committee in Washington. 
And so, but the interesting thing is, so he, he couldn't get a, a real job. <laughs> so he, he just <laughs> had to right. represent the Judiciary Committee. That's right, Jeez. <laughs> But the thing is that in in our family, once again, we came at it from a slightly different perspective. Um, we looked at it as important because. It was a way that we could govern ourselves, that, and it was our contribution. We were, it was drummed into us from the day we were able to hear words from our mother and our father. You have an obligation to serve this society and to give back what, because you've been, uh, you know, you're, you're Americans. You're, mm-hmm. you've been, your families have been given great uh, privileges to live in this country, and you have an obligation to give back. And, and literally, <coughs> we would read story, they would read stories to us about um, great diplomats or soldiers or, or generals or presidents. Or, but it was always, what have they given? What did they give back to this country? And, uh, and, and, and the other thing is what penalty they paid. You know, so you, you, we know that um, being in government, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, is it sometimes sounds like it's an easy deal. All the politicians, you know, always get the front seats, and they and they uh, they go around and they bloviate in front of audiences, and people applaud for them and all that. But they really don't do anything, or it's really not hard. It is brutally. It is hard. hard. It, it is, is yeah. brutally hard. And um, there, some people, um, I think, run out of their ability to to, to tolerate it um, after X number of years. Uh, or X number of minutes in this world. And then there's others who can stay in it or come back in and out and in and out. And I, I have an immense amount of respect for those people who work in government and around government. Not everybody is honest. We prosecuted a lot of uh, public officials uh, or would-be politicians. However, the vast majority of those people that I work with are really decent people. Oh, sure. Honest. You know, they really really are. And I'm glad you said that because, obviously, I'm more familiar with the judicial branch of government, but the judges I know are truly, really hardworking and thoughtful people, and they want to do the right thing, and they want to do right by people. Uh, And I have tremendous respect for the judiciary as a whole and certainly the individual judges I know, uh, especially we've been really blessed in West Michigan. We, I think we have a very quality bench here, and we have since I've been out of law school we for over 20 years. We have the best judges in the entire universe right here <laughs> Mike always says that because he still has to practice before them. <laughs> You're darn right, baby. <laughs> but I don't have to say that anymore. All I got, the only key, piece I got to keep is at home. So yeah, I, you I just... just <laughs> You're the specialist of bloviating. Yeah. I'm going to have to use that word. <laughs> and, and wait, even the, wait, Kurt, talk about good seats. Talk about being in power and getting good seats. We get the best seats from Wood Radio. Well, we, we saw each other at the Nutcracker. I think we had the back, I, I will tell back you, row seats. I will tell you a cute story once. So I was in front of, I was down in Cassopolis, right? Your neck yep. of the woods down yep. there before Judge Dodge. And I was arguing uh, a legal issue. It was a primarily legal issue. And in support of my argument, I was quoting a Michigan Court of Appeals case. The problem is I was relying on the dissent. And the dissenting judge was Judge Markey. Well, <laughs> and Judge Markey's my wife, by the way. So, the and, and you have to explain to the listeners that the scent is not controlling, but it can be persuasive. And you have to put in your brief that it's a dissent. So I put the standard Markey comma dissenting, which, of course, my opponent read. And I give this very passionate argument had to do with agency and, and who's liable and this and that and the other thing. And my opponent stood up and said, Your Honor, I noticed that Mr. Benson quoted Judge Markey in dissent. Whereas Judge Markey's dissents may be binding in Mr. Benson's house, they're not binding in this courtroom. <laughs> and he sat down. That was his entire argument. Thank you very much. And I lost the argument. 
because Mike Dodge <laughs> was not impressed. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like Queen Victoria. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break right now again. We're with uh, Mike Dunn and Kurt Benson, professors, lawyers, um, public officials, dignitaries, and, uh, and television renaissance people. We'll be right back. back now with the two people who I have to mention in the same breath now, because to be equal, that is uh, Benson and Dunn and Dunn and Benson, who are lawyers. They have a news radio Wood 1300 uh, radio program called The Lawyers in Grand Rapids, uh, along with uh, Cooley Law School, their, their, their employer, actually. Uh, if you want to hear their program, you can also go to the lawyers show.com and hear the podcasts or to Wood Radio or KZO and uh, hear it uh, streaming when they're on the air. Now, gentlemen, I've got to tell you guys a story too because since we uh, we've 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 kind of degenerated to uh, anecdotes. Well, that happens around us. I know, I know. Great great, you know, beautiful theory and then we go into anecdotes, but you're talking about uh, being, having uh, trying to cite your wife against the other person. <laughs> I was uh, trying a tax protester case, and uh, Judge Miles was the cha- was the judge, and it was the first time I'd ever tried a tax case. And you know, I my dad's firm in Chicago did a lot of tax cases uh, very well, but I never got any of that talent. So I was up there thinking, what in heck am I going to do? And this this tax protester wheeled in two huge carts of law books. I thought I'm dead. The man <laughs> is going to bury me because I don't know all the niceties of tax protester law. So we're going through the trial, and finally, he's citing one case after another, and finally he said, and on the question of income, I want to cite the case of Smetanka versus Standard Oil. And I said, that's it. Your Honor, I object. And everybody looked, and I said, I will not ha- sit here and have my father, quote, my grandfather quoted against me. <laughs> because, in fact, it was my grandfather who was involved in that case. That's he was funny. collector of internal revenue. It was only in name only uh, that, that he was the plaintiff. But but at any rate, That's very good. at the end of the – when that remark came out, people laughed. The judge laughed. And you know the Judge Miles had an interesting mm-hmm. laugh. Oh, yes. And the tax protester laughed. And he says, okay, I'll take that one back. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right. So, Mike, what about you? What, you've, he's, uh, he's told us about the theoretical of why – the law is uh, is uh, why it's a passion for him, and you and you talked a little bit about helping the little guy, helping the the uh, um, well, the downtrodden or the the defendant or whatever. But what about the lawyer as a defense attorney? Is that a well respected profession in society? Well, you, you know. You know, and, and, and I teach criminal practice also. Mm-hmm. And part of the analysis in criminal practice, everybody's always saying, how can you do that? How can you represent, a, a, you know, a child pornographer? Or how can you represent a murderer? And, you know, the standard line is we're not representing them. We're representing their right to have a defense, their, the Constitution we're in support of. But it's interesting. You get involved in some of these cases, 
And I have cases where I frankly don't ask my client if they did it or not. Um, and if they said I did it, well, then we can't be putting them on the stand and have them say something different. So I try to go in and try to do, quote, unquote, damage control. I'm one of those lawyers that tries to take a bad situation. I've got a guy in federal court right now who's looking at 30, 35 years because he's just a bad character. Well, it took me months to work with him. And we're going to end up with a sentence of about 12 years. Now, he's a bad character. He's going to go away for 12 years. Um, you know, he probably thinks it's the rest of his life. But that's his screaming success. So I really did something to help that human. But at the same point in time, he's going away to prison where he probably belongs. But he didn't belong there for 30 years. So my role becomes, you know, it's not white knight. But my role is a sort of kind of black knight with a little bit of white paste on it you know so. I think that's a that, that's a point that's often overlooked you know especially in the state system we're probably 98 percent of all criminal cases are resolved through plea bargaining mm-hmm. i think it's 102 percent yeah mm-hmm. uh it, and the reality is and because i did a very i didn't do a lot of criminal defense work i did a little bit you know and of course i get the question how can you defend these people it's like you know look Oftentimes, they're just caught red-handed. I mean, you, you sometimes are in a situation where you don't know the guy's innocent or guilty. Very often, we all know he's innocent. Or excuse me, he's guilty because he got caught. We know what the charge is. We know what he's facing. I, don't, I would never apologize because I'm looking at a guy who's looking at, say, 10 years in prison, and I think that's a particularly harsh punishment. So I think to myself, okay, look, I know he's guilty, and I know he deserves punishment. But I don't have any problem whatsoever attempting to negotiate a better deal for him. So instead of the 10 years, maybe he gets eight, maybe he gets six, maybe he gets four and a half. There's nothing wrong. I mean, that, so how do I defend those people? Hey, I defend them because, you know what, 10 years is too long. Can I give you a caught red-handed story, a mm. very brief one? It just recently happened to me where a client of mine from the federal system had just robbed a bank. And I get appointed to the case because they're going to be bringing him in. But he robbed the bank at like 3 o'clock on a Monday afternoon. And um, the FBI got him by about 6 o'clock on Monday afternoon, which is the way they do it. And usually the, the person will be all red from the red dye of the money exploding. Or, you know, they just get him so quick. So the first piece of evidence I got when I went to over to the jail to meet, the FBI handed me, a picture of what they had faxed from the bank to the FBI office to interview my client, and there's my client standing there with a gun pointed down (laughs) to the ground, and underneath, the nice FBI man had him write, this is me robbing the bank, (laughs) dating it, the time, and signing it. And he said, Mike, have a nice day with your case. Mike, you couldn't work around that evidence? (laughs) I said, I'll win this with no problem. (laughs) And by the way, John, when you talk about all the esoteric reasons for going into the law the reality is because when i was a kid and i'd hear my dad sitting around with his yeah. lawyer friends they had the best stories i'm sorry my carpet cleaners just don't have very many exactly. good stories exactly. but lawyers all and no matter whenever you get lawyers together it always comes back to just telling stories and i love stories and you know it's an adventurous life you know you're it's swashbuckling i mean in a day you could be in a federal lockup for me or in, in to meet with a client or to do a proffer or to meet with the FBI or then in the afternoon you could be trying to help uh, a kid get into foster care or something because I handle a lot of stuff with people or having problems like that. And so it's it's really adventurous and that's what is really yeah, And magical. one day you might talk to a prisoner and that afternoon talk to a Supreme Court justice. Exactly. You know, and, and right. so you really get a range of people that you can talk to in a single day or be around. I have I, I have a story for your dad. Okay. You can bounce off of him. And I, I, I always tell my friends who are judges uh, and other people in political gatherings, I said, you know, they always complain about people, judges having judgeitis. Their, their egos get too big. I said, here's the deal. 
everybody in life wants to be something other than they are. I always wanted to be a baseball player. Well, I'm a lawyer, all right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be Kurt Benson, but... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my dear. (laughs) You need counseling. He's not shooting for the moon. He He aimed low. Now, you guys, you guys are destroying my story. I'll tell you why. You'll see why. I said, because, you know, lawyers as a class are a very boring group of people. We don't tell jokes well. We don't, really. If you start to stand up and say, hey, did you hear the one about? People are guaranteed to fall asleep. Uh, But when you become a judge, when a lawyer becomes a judge, (laughs) all of a sudden everybody laughs at your jokes. You're the funniest guy in town. And they sit there and they think, oh, my God, I was as funny as I thought I was. (laughs) And the ego expands and it never comes back. You've been wrong all these years. There's a little of that in the law professor, too, I must admit. (laughs) My students think I'm an absolute riot. (laughs) Just before grading exams, they think I'm just a riot. (laughs) What a hoot. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But, you know, you do see black robe disease. I mean, and you see great, nice people, and all of a sudden, if everybody's always laughing at every joke, everybody's always looking up, to you, it's all yes ma'am or no ma'am and you know i can i can see where you go home you can turn into just an abysmal bore you walk in the door and try to have that same persona i can see where you right. could have some real problems and that's why good spouses are good are very important kids or, you, or your dogs are the way of bringing you back to reality if, if you're not I, I when i was in england i studied uh, to be a barrister for a little while Ooh. and in England. You just I was, needed a wig. I, I believe <laughs> me. I need a wig. So come out to my office, and you'll see the picture where I borrowed my barrister's wig and robe, and had my picture taken, looking like a complete '70s idiot because I had these big, <laughs> curly sideburns. And at any rate, people in the office keep. Will you take that down, please? I said, No, no, it's my humiliation. But at any rate. Um, I had the opportunity, one of the, the barrister whom, with whom I was working as my quasi-pupil master, um, uh, had me sit in on a trial of a case, and um, we lost. However, um, he introduced me to the judge, the, the high court judge that had tried that case, and the high court judge invited me to sit with him as a marshal in a, a complex arm, set of armed robbery cases that um, what he was going to be trying in the Old Bailey. And uh, as a marshal, in that sense, is more like a, something like a law clerk um, within reason. You sit up there close to the judge. And so what we would do is I w- we would come out together, sit down, watch part of the trial. He'd make his rulings, take a recess, and walk back. And I w- we would walk back out. And we'd sit in, in chambers and talk about what happened, making comparisons between the two systems. How would you handle this? How would you handle this in America? Why did you do this here? The thing I found absolutely fascinating, it changed my whole <coughs> life, because uh, 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 I had spent, been an assistant prosecutor for three years at that point, was that I saw for the first time what law clerks see, is the trial unfold from the, the, the bench's perspective. And it's a whole different point of view. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And one of the things <coughs> that, that, that uh, in this particular case, they had 12 different defendants who were charged in 29 different burglaries and armed robberies in which sometimes, you know, defendants two and three would be a part of robbery one and so on. It was all very confusing. The judge said... And they don't have juries. Oh, they did have a jury. Oh, yes, they did have a jury. And so um, the judge sat there. We we had talked about it when we were, before we went into the beginning. He said, this is a very complicated indictment. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a problem. So he went in and he turned to the prosecuting uh, QC and said, uh, Mr. Jones, would you please um, 
tell me how I am supposed to instruct a jury on this case? And, um, and he, Mr. Jones, I'm watching their eyes, and I am seeing me right. sitting out there yep. struggling to figure out what the judge is talking about, what he's going to do to me, and try to plan my trial based on reading the judge's eyes and words and thinking about the law and my witnesses and all at one time, and the strain of the trial lawyer trying to figure out what's going on and stay in control. And so the judge, like in America, <coughs> said, Mr. Jones, I'm going to take a recess at this point, and I, want, I will be back in 15 minutes, and I would like to see this indictment in better form. So we walk out, we chat for 15 minutes, come back in. They had cut out eight defendants <laughs> and about, <laughs> and about you know, 20 cases, and it was mm -hmm. down to something manageable. And I thought to myself, that's me. That was me out there. That's very cool. It was a cool experience. And when I came back, I, I, I wanted to make it uh, mandatory that everybody in my office, when I was, at that time I was prosecutor, got a chance to sit and look at a trial from the perspective of the judge mm -hmm. or the jury uh, because it gives you a whole different perspective than if you're you know, one of us duking it out, trying to, trying to do the best thing for your client, whether the client is the people or a defendant or plaintiff or whatever. It's a fascinating, fascinating uh, world that we live in. It truly well, is. You know, it's really interesting. It's after a while you get so used to speaking in front of people and getting the topic or the subject changed in this moot court class I'm teaching – Calling people at random, people I know don't want to be called, I especially call them first, and then I will change the topic they think they're going to talk about by the time they make it to the podium. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. There's so much of that in this business where you have to be able to think on your feet, you have to be able to go from one topic to the next, and you have to be able to respond to what the judge is saying. But half the time in those long trials and the judge says, and Mr. Dunn, and he goes to this long thing where I know he's yelling at me, what I'm frankly thinking about is what I'm going to have for lunch. Because I know if I start to really focus on someone yelling at me, then I'm just going to get mad. So I just think, okay, well, I have that with cheese or no cheese, maybe a little <laughs> bit of mustard. But anyway. All right, we're now coming to the last minute or so of our program. Oh, this is the explosive part. And this is where I want to know your views on every controversial issue. What is your views on machine guns? What are you on abortion? On, <coughs> on time of. Uh, you know, time or prisons, whatever. No, I I'm want to ask you this. All of them. Give one. <laughs> I'm against all of them. So, <laughs> okay. so thank and that's you. That's why you are both successful. That's right. As a team, and because, we're beautiful. And you don't like each other either. I can we tell don't. that. <laughs> we don't. Mary, would you please remember he's got to go first? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, one sentence, Kurt. One sentence. What would you tell to a young young person out there thinking about whether I should go to law school or not? Mike, your turns afterwards. Or you want to go first, Mike? You say it. Uh, do it at all costs. It, you'll have more respect for yourself, and you'll be able to help the world. I would tell them, don't do it if you want. Don't go into it because you think you're going to get rich, because you probably won't. Do it because you love the law. And you'll get a lot of women. Yeah, the chicks <laughs> oh, <dig> come <laughs> on. No, you won't. No, you won't. But I thought I wanted to end the show <laughs> Just speak for yourself, okay, for pity's okay, sake. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Thank you very much. Our program today has uh, been, I'm, I'm sure, entertaining to a number of people and, and uh, off-putting to others. We've had, <laughs> we've had Kurt Benson, professor, and uh, Mike Dunn, trial lawyer, about to be professor. Their program is on w, is News Radio Wood 1300 and WKZO 590. Our program is With Respect. We're here every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock and every 
uh, Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. We'll be talking to you next week. With respect, 